Okay, I mean it this time. We're going to finish chapter 16. I promise. Today. I mean it. <laughs> so, uh, verses 27 and 28. Um, it's going to be kind of a weird message this morning. Uh, this is going to be much more of a teaching message uh, than a preaching message. Um, not, I don't know how many of you would even recognize uh, the, the difference. Um, but today is going to be um, a look at verses 27 and 28. And then we're going to talk about eschatology. Uh, eschatology, I want to kind of help you with that word in case you aren't aware. Um, it is the study of the eschatos. That helps, right? No? Crud. Um, so that word eschatos is the Greek word for end. So when we talk about eschatology, we are talking about the end times, the things that occur at the end of days. Now, here's the disclaimer. There are very few topics inside a church that will cause more upset, more division, more strife, and more church splits than a discussion about eschatology. Sad as that may be, because it's not really a major point of theology. It's a minor point of theology, but as usual, human beings, we major on the minors and we make mountains out of molehills. Um, We are not going to talk about what particular flavor of eschatology is right or wrong. We're not going to talk about even which flavor of eschatology I happen to agree with. I'm just going to introduce them to you because... They fit the text of Scripture that we're looking at this morning. All right, so with that being said, let's all stand and we'll look at our Scripture for this morning. I'm going to read Matthew 16, verses 27 and 28. For the Son of Man is going to come with His angels in the glory of His Father, and then He will repay each person according to what He has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death, until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Let's pray. Father, above all today, we want to be unified in Christ. Uh, Please help us to set aside our biases, our preconceived ideas, and Father, help us to just understand what Your Word says. And we pray this through Christ. Amen. Please have a seat. So, two verses, nice and easy, should be done in 10 minutes or more, emphasis on the more. So, there are actually two different phrases here, and I believe what we're talking about are are really two distinctly different time frames, two different events. Uh, We spoke about the last, or the first verse, verse 27, a little bit last week. Um, where Jesus says the Son of Man is going to come with His angels in the glory of His Father, and then He will repay each person according to what He has done. The Son of Man is who? All right, y'all passed the test. That's Jesus. That is the most commonly used name that Jesus assigns to Himself. In the book of Matthew, He refers to Himself as the Son of Man more times than anything else. 
most of us, when we hear Son of Man, we think about Jesus talking about His humanity. Because that's what it sounds like, right? He's the Son of Man. Well, actually, if you go back to the book of Daniel in chapter 7, Daniel sees a vision of the throne room of God, and he sees one coming like a Son of Man who is worthy to open the scrolls of judgment. And that is actually a picture of Jesus' divinity, not His humanity. It's because He is the one who is like a Son of Man, who is worthy to open the scrolls of judgment. Um, So Jesus says that He's going to come with His angels in the glory of His Father, and He will repay each person according to what He's done. So He's coming back in glory. What does that sound like? That sounds like a big deal, right? That sounds like something that's going to be noticeable, right? That sounds like something that is not going to be easy to miss. He's going to come back in glory with an angelic host. A host in Scripture is another word for an army. So he is going to have an army of angelic beings with him when he returns in glory. This is not something that is going to be kept secret. However, I told you we're not going to be talking about who's right and who's wrong. However, that doesn't necessarily mean that there may not be a return that is secret. But when this return happens, it's going to be a big deal. It's not something we're going to miss. Now, this has led most scholars to believe that Jesus is talking about His second coming. The second coming of Christ. Prior to the separation of the saved from the unsaved. The question becomes, when does this happen? Now here is our transition into the world of eschatology. Because there are three main camps in the study of eschatology. And and, and again, a disclaimer before I start. Please understand that this isn't one of those cases where you have one camp that is orthodox and the other two are heretics. Even though we might refer to each other that way, that's not the case. Okay, Most of the people who fall into any of these three camps are sincere genuine, Christ-honoring followers. These are Christians. These are saved people. Now, which one of us can say we understand everything in Scripture perfectly? No. That means somebody has to get something wrong. I I could have a, a, a very, very, very wonderful discussion with a Presbyterian brother and still think that he's wrong about baptizing infants. That doesn't mean he's not saved. That doesn't mean I'm not saved. It just means we have a difference of understanding of Scripture. So that's what we want to understand here with these three different camps is not that one is right and the other two are heretics and need to be burned at the stake. That's the way we generally approach things in the church. But these are genuine believers who understand the end times events differently. These different groups are categorized by their placement 
of the reign of Christ, the millennial reign of Christ. There are those who believe that the millennium is a period of time prior to the second coming, uh, a period... uh, Okay. Wow. I must have been really tired when I wrote that. Uh, (laughs) A period of time when Christianity becomes the majority faith in the world, the majority practice in the world. And that belief system, that group in eschatology, is called post-millennialism because Jesus returns after the millennium. Now, the biggest rise in post-millennial belief was in the late 1800s. Following the Civil War, the advent of the Industrial and Medical Revolution, right? The spread of Christianity, there was a lot of study going into Scripture. There was a lot of archaeology that was taking place that was confirming what Scripture said. And the world was becoming a more Christian place. Right up until the turn of the 20th century, when this little conflict broke out, that became the war to end all wars, World War I. And post-millennialism kind of saw a drop-off in its adherence. Post-millennialism understands that the world is going to grow more Christ-like until the point when Jesus returns. Okay? All right. The second group... The second group are the ah millennialists. That doesn't mean that they believe there's going to be a millennium. That ah is is the prefix for not. Okay? Like amoral, somebody who's not moral. Okay? So ah millennial, their belief structure is that the millennium, that thousand-year reign of Christ, is not a literal thousand-year reign. Rather, it is a spiritual reign that is parallel with the church age. So it's not confined to a thousand years. It is the period from when Christ ascended into heaven, and it will end when he returns. So there is no physical millennial reign of Christ here on earth. That's amillennial. And then the third and most complicated (laughs) group are the premillennialists. Now, I bet you money that all of you have run into premillennialism, probably in a particular flavor because you live in the United States. And that would be the dispensational premillennial camp. Premillennial, if you can tell by the, the prefix on this, pre-millennial, when's Jesus coming back? Before the millennium, right? Post-millennial, he comes back after Amillennial, he's reigning in heaven right now, and he will come back to establish his kingdom. Premillennial means he will come back before the thousand-year reign. Okay? That's where premillennialism stops being easy. Um, Premillennialists are split into two major subdivisions. Um, The first has nothing at all to do with the millennium, or when Christ is returning. Instead, they have everything to do 
with Israel. Uh, distinctions between the church and Israel. Um, the, the two camps, the first is called historic premillennialism, which sees the church as being grafted into Israel. The Israel that is mentioned in the end times is true spiritual Israel, which includes the church, not necessarily national Israel over in the Middle East. This is based on Paul's teaching about the church being grafted into the olive tree. The other group, the dispensational premillennialists, understand that there is a distinct separation between the church and national Israel, and that God is going to deal with national Israel differently than he deals with the church. Okay. There are further separations even within those subdivisions of all three of those different camps, and they have to do with the timing of when stuff happens in Revelation, whether you know the destruction of Jerusalem, the rebuilding of the temple, the nature of the return of Jesus, whether it's going to be a two-part second coming, right? Where he's going to come and he's going to collect up the church at one point, and then he's going to come in glory, or if it's going to be a public second coming, just one part, there's all of these different debates. And then there are those who consider themselves to be pan-millennialists. They don't really worry about the pre-, post-, or amillennial positions, and they just hope that it will all pan out in the end. Um, there are some pros and cons to that. And the biggest one is they generally tend not to worry about studying what Scripture has to say about the end times. And I think to neglect any part of Scripture is a bad idea. Okay? So the reason I, I, I bring all of this up, and I know that was a lot of stuff, is because every one of us is going to characterize ourselves in one of these camps. If we spend any amount of time studying Scripture, specifically studying the end times, we're going to fall into one of these camps. And it's going to... It's going to be a combination of the things that we've heard when we were children, the books that we've read, the, the television and or movies that we may have watched, the commentaries, the sermons, the churches, all of the stuff from our past, plus what we read into Scripture. And depending on which camp you categorize yourself in, it's going to change or at least impact the way you understand passages like chapter 16, verses 27 and 28. Because the Son of Man is going to come with His angels in the glory of His Father, and then He will repay each person according to what He has done. According to the post-millennialist, that is at the end of the millennium, Jesus is going to come back and He's going to judge the saved and the unsaved. The unsaved are going to be separated out as the sheep from the goats, right? And the unsaved are going to perish. They're going to be consigned to hell. The saved are going to have their works judged, and they're going to receive their reward based on their works. This happens after Jesus' millennial reign through His church. The amillennialist 
says that this is going to happen at the end of the church age and that the church age is not going to be an upward climb of popularity for Christianity, but it's going to be what we see in the world today where there's going to be persecutions and there's going to be wars and there's going to be fighting and there's going to be all kinds of stuff. And then Jesus is coming back with the judgment. The premillennialist, whether they are of the secret rapture of the church or not, if they are, generally the dispensational camp, then they understand that Jesus is going to come back at some point, either at the beginning of a seven-year tribulation, in the middle of a seven-year tribulation, or at the end of a seven-year tribulation, and He's going to collect up His church with Him, and then He's going to come back after the seven years, after the three and a half years, whatever, and he's going to rule for a thousand years, and then the judgment? The historic camp generally tend to be, he's going to come back, the judgment, and then the millennium reign. So you see how studying these different things, it's going to impact how you look at Scripture when you read this. What are we talking about? Are we talking about the rapture? Are we talking about the second coming before the judgment, or are we just talking about the second coming before the millennium? Why does it matter? Why can't we all just be pantheists, or pan-millennialists, rather, not pantheists, that's bad, pan-millennialists, and just not worry about it? Well, if I believe that the millennial reign is going to happen after everything gets better, then I'm going to believe that everything just gets better and Christianity becomes more popular. Right? I wish that was the case. But that's going to impact the way I do evangelism, isn't it? That's going to impact the way I interact with society. That's going to impact the way I vote for, for politicians when it comes time to vote. That's going to interact everything about the way I live my life. If... On the other hand, I think that there is no real millennial reign and it's just one of these days Jesus is going to come back. Boom. That's going to impact the way I live my life. If I believe that there's going to be a period of tribulation and I really don't want my loved ones to go through all that yuck and Jesus is going to come back and take the church out before that happens, then I'm going to be on fire just blasting everybody with evangelism, right? Maybe. Because there's lukewarm, dispensational, premillennialists too. It changes the way we understand Scripture. It changes the way we understand and practice evangelism. It changes the way we think and grow in our own Christian walk. And it changes the way we interact with other Christians. Remember my disclaimers that this is not pleasant to talk about, that this is what causes church splits. I was listening once to Danny who was talking about a friend of his he went through seminary with and he called Danny in a panic because he'd just gotten called to a church and he was finally getting to go through the bylaws of the church and according to the bylaws of the church he couldn't be a member of the church 
because the bylaws required all members to be dispensational premillennialists, and he was not. People feel strongly about this stuff to the point where they would restrict church membership to only those people who agree with their eschatological thought process. That takes out Christian charity, doesn't it? That takes out the ability to work with others who may differ on the small things that don't impact our salvation. And what that does is that cripples the church. I think quite probably that eschatology is one of Satan's favorite topics of theology. Because it's one place where he can make the church very ineffective. Because if we can keep fighting about whether Jesus is coming back in a secret return where he's going to pull the church out or in a public return where he's coming with his angels in glory and, and all of the, if we can keep fighting about that, who's doing evangelism? Who's ministering to the poor and the sick? Who's doing the work of ministry? The point of this passage is, regardless of your eschatology, at some point in time, Jesus is going to return in glory with an army of angels. Period. Where are you going to be when that happens? Where do you want to be when that happens? If you understand 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 to be this second coming, then... then the mankind that Jesus is coming back for to face judgment for their actions are those who are not in Christ. Those who are in Christ will be caught up to meet Him as, they, as He returns. That's what 1 Thessalonians says. Those who, who think that that's going to be the rapture would then consider the second coming to happen after the tribulation where those unbelievers get the chance to learn the error of their ways. Can you imagine what this world would be like without the church? I mean, it, it, take just a second here. I know the church is not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. We're a bunch of sinful, broken human beings, and we get things wrong more often than we get them right. But can you imagine the world that we live in without the church? With no church. With no Christians. You think it's bad now. At some point, Jesus is coming back. Where do you want to be? He says he's coming back to repay each person according to what he's done. Now, I believe from the pages of Scripture that we have confidence, if we are in Christ, that, that our repayment is going to be based on what we have done in Christ, our reward is going to be based on what we've done with, what He's given us, what we've done with the gospel, what we've done with our ministry, with our spiritual gifts. Those who are not in Christ are going to be repaid for what they have done outside of Christ. Paul makes that pretty clear in Romans, right? The wages of sin is what? That's pretty universal.
All of that's been in preparation for verse 28. (laughs) It's all introduction. Oh boy. Don't worry, I've only got about a thousand words left. This verse, if you think that the idea of eschatology has bothered people, this verse is the reason why. When is Jesus coming back? Because immediately after he says that he's coming back in glory, he says, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Maybe. Maybe spiritual. Maybe not. If he's talking about his second coming here, which is what the the immediate context appears to imply, then he's saying that some of the disciples will still be alive when that occurs. So I have a couple of questions for you. Did we miss something? (laughs) Or is it possible that we still have some of the disciples wandering around Walking the earth 2,000 years later. Highly doubt it. This is why we have to consider more than just the immediate context. Context is important, but it's context of the passage within the whole of Scripture. Flip your Bibles open if you closed them, because that was too early. What's the next chapter? What's the main topic of the next chapter? The transfiguration. Huh. They're in the transfiguration where Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up the mountain. They see Jesus, Jesus in his glory standing between Elijah and Moses. Well, there are some who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. There's three of them. I have a problem with that interpretation um, because it really doesn't make sense that Jesus would tell them that some of them will still be alive when they see Jesus come in his kingdom if he's talking about an event that's going to take place just mere days away. Okay? Because that's like the creepiest of creepy threats. (laughs) Jesus is looking at the twelve. Some of you will still be alive when you see me coming in my glory. Wait, what do you mean some? You know something that we don't? That really just doesn't make sense. Now, that being said, he did just finish telling them that following him comes with a price that could go as high as the cost of their life. So maybe he's trying to tell them that it's not going to happen in the next few days. It's possible. I really don't think so. It doesn't make a lot of sense. Another view, and this is one that I do agree with, um, has to do with the word in verse 28 that is translated as kingdom. There are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. What does that mean? There is a sense in which that word can mean kingdom as in a territory ruled by royalty. 
However, more often it is used to mean the royal power and authority that a king wields. The power and authority that a king has. See, when the, the Queen of England travels around the world, does she stop being the queen when she leaves the UK? No. She flies over here to the United States, she is still the queen. She still wields all of that power and authority in Great Britain. What she says goes-ish. Modified monarchy. If this is how Matthew is using this word, he's talking about the triumphant power of Jesus as Messiah. Jesus as the King. Well, when does Jesus really demonstrate that power? The resurrection. When he comes back from the dead. When he shows up in the upper room. Now, are all of the disciples alive when he does that? No. There's one of them who's not. Judas. Because he betrayed Jesus and then he killed himself. I happen to agree with this understanding that he's talking about his resurrection from the dead and his ascendancy into heaven. Because after those 40 days that Jesus appears to the women in the garden, then to the disciples in the upper room, and then to Peter, James, and John on the Sea of Galilee, and then to over 500 at one point, right? Then he ascends to heaven. And we talked about it this morning. The cloud obscured him from sight. The disciples got to see him in his kingdom. And they were alive to witness it. Mm -hmm. So, regardless of your eschatology, regardless of your view of the end times, We can disagree with each other and still fellowship together, right? Because I would wager a guess that there are probably some dispensational premillennialists in the room. There are probably some historic premillennialists in the room. There are probably some amillennialists in the room. There are probably, unlikely but possibly, some postmillennialists in the room. And we can still fellowship we can still worship together, and we can still accomplish the ministry of Christ. Because that's what we're called to do, right? But what I want to challenge you with is study to know what you believe. Now, yeah, next next week we're going to look at the transfiguration, but I want you to think about your position Oh, yeah, 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 no, we're not. Next week we start Advent. That's why I bring her along. She reminds me of what I forget. Next week we're starting Advent. When we come back to Matthew, after the new year, we will be studying the Transfiguration. Um, But right now, before we leave today, before I shut up and 
let you guys out early for making you listen to that whole eschatology thing. Um, I want to challenge you to study to know why you believe what you believe. Is it because of a careful study of God's Word or because you've been taught by a preacher or preachers over your life that this is the way things are going to happen? Is it because you've read studies or commentaries or books from a particular camp and you've become convinced that they are right? Is it because that's what your family believes? Are you a pan-millennialist who just doesn't care which camp you belong to and you just hope it'll all pan out in the end? If that's the case, then study, please. Um, But when you do this, I want you to ask God to help you understand what you're studying. There's nothing about eschatology that's easy. There's nothing about, I mean... Many theologians with much bigger brains than mine have spent many, 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 many years, 2,000 years of the church, trying to discern the end times. They haven't gotten it down yet. I haven't gotten it down yet. Study. Ask God to help you understand. And most of all, be willing to change your mind if the scriptures show you something that you weren't expecting. When I was a young believer, I told you I'm not going to tell you what camp I fall into now. I will tell you what camp I am not in. When I was a young Christian, I was influenced by a very popular, the most popular flavor of eschatology in the United States. And that is dispensational premillennialist with a pre-tribulation bent. Meaning that there would be a rapture of the church prior to the tribulation. And then at the end of the tribulation, Jesus would come back and he would reign for a thousand years. And then the final judgment. But as I've studied scripture, and I have talked to other people who've spent more time studying scripture than I have, and I've learned and studied some more and studied some more and studied some more, my mind has changed, and I'm no longer in that camp. But you need to be willing to listen to what God tells you when you read His Word. So with that, chapter 16 is now done. And with the end of chapter 16, we can know that sometime in the future, Jesus is coming back. And when he repays us for what we've done, if we are in Christ, then we want him to repay us for the obedience that we've had. Not the disobedience, not the stubbornness, not the hard-headedness, not the the reluctance to go, the reluctance to share, the reluctance to tell people, the, the I want to go my own way and be the master of my own ship. I really do not want to stand before Jesus on that day and have all of my works turn out to be wood, hay, and stubble.
but I can't do the works that are worth the gold, silver, and precious gems if I don't listen to God's word. We've got to be willing to do that. Now, if you're not in Christ, and He comes to repay you, I really, really, really urge you to hear the words of the gospel, that there is but one way to salvation, and that's through Christ. That's it, that's all, nothing else. You have to have faith in Christ to not be consigned to hell, period. That's the message we need to take to our neighbors.